Well, if you take your copies of God's Word and turn back just a chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and we will continue there from where we left off in our exposition last week as we are going through the first epistle of Paul to the church at Corinth. We come this week to verse number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 4. These are the words of God. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the 1800s, a Scottish minister named Alexander White was known for his uplifting prayers. He would pray that pastoral prayer that, that I pray at every service. And they were always so encouraging and uplifting. He always found something to be grateful for. Uh, but one Sunday morning, the weather outside there in Scotland was so dreary and so gloomy that one church member thought to himself, well, certainly the preacher won't think of anything good for which to thank the Lord on a wretched day like this. Well, much to his surprise, as the minister began to pray, he said, we thank thee, O God, that all days are not like this. <laughs> and this Scottish pastor from yesteryear, well, he's not the only one who persevered through the glooms of life and through the hardships of ministry and deliberately sought out reasons to offer thanksgiving to God. The Apostle Paul was no doubt dismayed when he received the troubling news from the Corinthian church. I'm sure Paul was very disappointed to hear that already this young church was facing a litany of problems. A factious spirit had divided the members and they were at odds with one another. And the Corinthians were infatuated with, with human wisdom and, and pride and they, they neglected the simplicity of gospel preaching. And the body of the Corinthians was struck with sexual immorality that was running rampant through the church. And the church at Corinth was already being squeezed into the mold of the wicked culture around them. I'm sure it troubled Paul to no end to hear of what had befallen the Corinthians. And upon receiving this news, Paul immediately penned a letter to address their dilemma. But rather than beginning with words of anger or rage, rather than starting off his letter by just smacking him across the face, though he'll get to that, amen, he rose above his frustrations and he offers a prayer 
of gratitude. The, the scripture that I read to you tonight, verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1, that is Paul's prayer over the Corinthian church. And the circumstances in which he offers this prayer. Corinth did not just win Church of the Year award. No, Corinth is in deep trouble. And yet Paul finds a reason to be thankful. I want to preach to you tonight on the essence of what it means to be partakers of grace. Partakers of grace. Notice Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God always. Notice who Paul directed this prayer of thankfulness towards. He didn't say, I thank you, church. He didn't say, I, I thank Timothy. I thank Apollos. No, he said, I thank my God. He offered thanks to God for this carnal church because though they had a multitude of issues, he could still see the evidence of God's grace at work in their lives. And therefore, he had great reason to be thankful. And this was a common theme throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote 14 letters to local churches that were all addressing various false teachings and rebuking the different issues that were in those assemblies. And in all of these letters, these reproving letters, it's interesting when we understand that in every one of them, Paul begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. Before he condemns, he commends. That's the pattern of the Pauline ministry. The only exception to that rule is his letter to the church at Galatia. Because the Galatian churches, they were departing from the true gospel. And that issue was so vexatious and so grieving that, that Paul didn't waste any time. He, right there, chapter 1, verse 1, he tears into them. But in all of his other letters, he begins with this prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude for what God had done with these churches. No matter what their issues were, no matter what their problems were. Notice also, he thanked God always. I thank my God always. There is a continual flow of thanksgiving from the Apostle Paul to God. He, he's just always thanking God. Uh, that's the mark of a spiritually minded man. The more we grow in the knowledge of God, and the more we understand the wonders of His grace, the more thankful we'll be. I think as Christians, there's never a reason, never a reason, for us to not be thankful for God and what He's done for us. And so Paul understood this, and, and Paul said, I, I thank my God always. Paul was not selfish with his gratitude either. Notice what he's specifically thankful for and what he's specifically thanking God for. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf. See, it's one thing to constantly thank God for what he's doing for you. <laughs> I think, th Lord, thank you for what you've been doing for me lately. But how often do we stop and look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and look at our fellow churches and look at other pastors 
and offer a prayer to God, thanking God for what he's doing for someone else. That's spirituality. That's convicting when I read these words. You know, we ought to just let go of our pride and relinquish our jealousy and just thank God when we see him working with someone. We're so quick to to be critical and to rush to judgment and, and to nitpick. We were talking about that on the way to church this evening. Nitpicking is a great sin in Baptist churches. We see a man that the Lord is using or a church that the Lord is using or a family that the Lord is using and before we ever think to just thank God for them, we want to nitpick the the little things that maybe they're not doing right. And most of the time, those that we nitpick don't have nearly the amount of problems that Corinth had. And Corinth was a mess. Man, but we'll take a, a man of God who's laboring week in and week out, who's faithful to his congregation, who's faithful to his family, we'll tear him to shreds over some tertiary issue. Shame on us. Why don't we just be like the Apostle Paul and say, you know what? Maybe I disagree with him on some things, but I thank God for the grace in his life. I thank God for what he's doing. Blessing. That that was Paul's pattern in the ministry. We'd do well to adopt it in our lives. Now, the specific object for which Paul is thankful. Verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Now, if I've said it one time, I've said it a hundred. Pay close attention to the ifs, buts, therefores, whosoevers, whereins, and fors of the Bible. This four is very important in verse four. Because this four tells us exactly why Paul is so thankful. The supreme cause of Paul's gratitude was the wonderful and matchless grace of God. And the more we understand about God's grace, the more we will appreciate it when we see it on display in the lives of God's people. When we really understand the transforming, regenerating, quickening, altering, convicting, conforming grace of God. When we see it at work, when we see it on display, it will cause our hearts to be thankful. And so Paul says, I think... God, for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's seven things in this text, from verse 4 to verse 9, that I want you to see about the grace of God. There's seven things about grace for which we should be thankful. There's seven things about grace that, that we as partakers of grace need to understand. The first is the realm of grace. The realm of grace. Look at it in the end of verse 4. It is the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. The apostle, the apostle Paul, is a grace man. He, he writes about it all the time. Grace, 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 grace. He can't get away from the grace of God. His preaching and his writing is saturated with it. And verse 4 through 8 
If you're reading out of the authorized version, it's translated as one long sentence, and it's that way in the original. Verse 4 through 8 is one long sentence all about the grace of God. And Paul begins speaking of the realm of God's grace, and he details for us in this verse the source of grace and the sphere of grace. Look at the source. It's the grace of God. Self-explanatory. It goes without saying, yet it still needs to be said. By this is meant that all the fullness of the Godhead is at work administering grace to mankind. All grace originates with the Trinity. And long before you and I were ever born, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost, they agreed within themselves to dispense their grace out upon mankind. And before you ever came into this world, God had already purposed in eternity to act towards you with grace. How wonderful. How wonderful. That means you didn't do anything to earn it, by the way. We can't begin to fathom the sheer amount of grace that is poured out upon us by not just God the Father, not just God the Son, not just God the Holy Spirit, but all three persons in the Godhead, all giving us a specific outpouring of grace. That's the source of grace. It's the only place grace comes from, by the way. It comes from nowhere else outside of God. But look at the sphere of grace. How is grace specifically and directly administered to us? It's administered to us by Jesus Christ. In verse 4, it's given you by Jesus Christ. And this little phrase unlocks the theology of the Apostle Paul. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ and all of its equivalents. So in Christ, by Christ, in our Lord Jesus, so on and so forth. He uses that phrase 164 times in his 14 epistles. If you understand in Christ, you understand the theology of the Apostle Paul. For Paul, everything revolved around in Christ. Everything was all related to being positionally in the Lord Jesus. Because he is the hub, the center, and the great point of integration for the entirety of our lives. We as Christians ought to live in such a way that Jesus is our center of gravity. And everything else in our life, in some way, shape, or form, relates back to him. And it comes from him and it's through Him, and it's to Him, and we do it for His glory, and it goes back to Him. That's how we are to live our lives. Every blessing, each gift, and all of God's grace comes exclusively in Christ. Outside of Him, there is no mercy, no love, and no grace. So, stop right there. The end of verse 4. And ask yourself, are you in Christ? Are you positionally united to Christ? Have you repented of sin and placed your full trust in what he has done? Not just do you know about Christ. Everybody knows about Christ. We're in the Bible Belt. Are you in Christ? United to him.
Can you say, when he died, I died. When he was buried, my old man and all my sin was buried. And when he rose from the grave, I rose from the grave. Jesus died so that you and your sins could die. And Jesus rose again so that you and not your sin could rise again. This is the only way that you will ever be a partaker of God's grace. If you are in Christ. That's the realm of grace. Secondly, I want you to see the reach of grace. The reach of grace. Verse number five. That in everything ye are enriched by him. In all utterance and in all knowledge. This is the the liberality of grace. The the generosity of grace. the, The fullness of grace. That in everything... Here enriched by him in everything. Despite the present struggles that the Corinthians were experiencing, they had received real and extensive grace. This this is a grace that, that seeps down into the depths of your life and covers every facet of your Christianity. This is a grace that turns sinners into saints and turns drunkards into disciples turns the wretched into the redeemed. That's the wonderful grace of Jesus. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is encompassed in this universal application to those who receive God's grace in Jesus Christ. There's no part of your life, if you're a Christian, there's no part of anything you do or anything you believe or anywhere you'll go or anyone you'll meet that is not in some way covered by this grace. That in everything, and it means everything, Notice how narrow the source of grace. It's only to be found in Christ. But notice how broad the scope of grace. It covers everything. It covers all your sin. It covers everywhere you've gone, everything you've done, everything you're going to do. It covers all of your fallings, all of your failures. But you know what? It also covers all of your successes. It covers all of your victories. If you persevere in the Christian life, mark it, it's not because you are just better than other Christians. It's because of God's grace in your life. You are enriched in everything. Notice that that word enriched. That in everything you are enriched by Him. Paul, looking for a word to describe the the grace of God being given to us. And he's he's thinking there for a word and he he comes up with this word enrichment. (laughs) What does that mean? That means you, you were... A pauper. You had nothing. And the grace of God came into your life and suddenly a vast treasury of wealth was transferred to you called the grace of God. You didn't come up with that wealth on your own. You were enriched. It means there was someone who gave you those riches. And that someone is God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we possess all of the divine riches in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because of our position in Him. Everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to us who are in Him. Do you realize that's what it means to be adopted into the family of God? We are joint 
heirs with the Son of God. You know, we talk about small southern towns and how you've got these families that are the, the big name families in the town and it seems like you'll have two or three last names that own everything. And if you're born into that family, you're born into wealth. You're born into treasure. You're born into property and possession. How much more so is it to be born into the family of God? To be born into the family where the patriarch, the, the heavenly father, owns all things. And he's given all things. He's written a will and he's given it to his son. And we can say, that son is my big brother. I'm a joint heir. Everything that God gave to him, he gave to me in him. Man, that's grace. That's what it means to be enriched with the grace of God. And we ought to live in reality a life consistent with who we are positionally. Who are we positionally? Well, we're in Jesus Christ. Well, what was Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ was holy. Jesus Christ was sinless. Jesus Christ was undefiled. Jesus Christ was righteous. And that's what we are because we're in Him. And and our goal in the Christian life through progressive sanctification is to work out practically what we already are positionally. So if you say, I'm a saint in Christ, I'm holy in Christ, then you need to live a life in reality, that's consistent with who you are positionally. It doesn't make any sense to say, I'm holy in Jesus Christ, and I hate sin and love good, but then in your life, you love sin and hate good. Be who you are positionally, in reality. And you know, that's really the foundation of Paul's argument to the Corinthians. He'll say over and over again to them things like, No, he not. Don't, don't you know that by the saving grace of God, you're a changed person? You have a new identity. See, Paul beseeches the Corinthians to live holy and pure lives, and he does so on the basis of who they are in Jesus Christ. And when we, when we indulge in sin, we're living below our means as Christians. See, sin and immorality is inconsistent with our identity in Christ. We ought not do those things. You know, the wealthy families here in Henry County, there's some things that their kids won't do. They don't have to do them. They're above that. They're better than that. And us poor boys do it. You know what? It's the same with God. We don't have to sin. We don't have to live in uncleanness. We're better than that. (laughs) We have a heavenly Father that is holy and undefiled. And we have the privilege of being in Christ and free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to these Corinthians. You're a partaker of God's grace. Live like it. They're enriched in everything. And notice this, in all utterance and in all knowledge. God's grace specifically reaches to those things which enable and equip us to fulfill our calling as Christ's church. Recall that promise conferred upon the church in Acts 1.8 that they were going to receive a spiritual empowering. And in order for us to be what Jesus wants us to be, we need the grace 
of God in all utterances. I believe this refers to the grace of God that enables us to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, true Christians must be able to articulate the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must do that by the way we live, by the way we give, by the way we pray, by the way we dress, by the way we spend our time, by the places we go, by the places we don't go. We're we're communicating the gospel by the way we live our life. But most importantly, we communicate the gospel with our speech. Have you seen that sign, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words, it's foolishness. Okay, you preach the gospel with your speech first. You live a life that backs it up. But first and foremost, the utterances that you're enriched in is the grace of God to verbally communicate the gospel. So if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? How would you answer? Could you answer? Christians need to be able to answer these questions. When you hand out one of these tracts and you give that to someone and they say, man, what is this all about? What is the gospel of Christ? You need to be able to tell them. You don't need to be able to preach Genesis 1, Revelation 22, 21. God hasn't called all men. He hasn't called most men to pastor churches and preach in pulpits. But he's called every believer to be a witness You're saying, well, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could clearly explain it and clearly articulate it. Well, well, that's okay because not only have you been enriched in all utterance, but look at verse 5, you've also been enriched in all knowledge. In all utterance and in all knowledge. What is the knowledge? The knowledge is the grace to understand the truths of the gospel. Boy, God's really taking away your excuses, isn't He? It's the the grace to have all knowledge. To understand truth. Truth about God. Truth about His holiness. Truth about His righteousness. Truth about His justice. Truth about sin. Truth about Christ. Truth about His death. Truth about His burial. Truth about His resurrection. Truth about salvation. Truth about His church. Truth about hell. And truth about heaven. All of these truths and many, many more are taught in the Word of God. And to you who have received His grace, you are able to understand these things. There's no such thing as a Christian who cannot understand the Bible. There's passages that are hard to understand. And for some, it's going to be more challenging than others. But God gives all of His children the ability to understand His Word. And God desires you to know these things. Number one, so you'll be propelled in your own godliness. Godliness is simply knowing who God is and living in light of that reality. So if you don't know anything about God, you can't be godly. It's really profound, isn't it? I had to go to Bible college to learn that. (laughs) But secondly, God wants you to know these things so that you can share this truth with others, so that you can be a witness. You're not a very good witness if you say, let me tell you about God. And then they say, okay, what's he like? (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) You need to know some things about God. And his grace enables you to do that. Just reading the word (laughs) and understanding who he is. That's the reach of grace. It enriches you in everything. Now I want you to see the root of grace. 
in verse 6. Paul says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. See, Paul must pause and reiterate the wellspring of God's grace. He can't go two verses of describing the gracious gifts without describing the gracious giver. (laughs) You know, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians is one of the most Christocentric chapters in the whole Bible. I pray that you've been reading this epistle at home. Jesus Christ is mentioned 11 times in the first 10 verses of this chapter. 11 times in 10 verses. And in verse 6, he says that you've been enriched by God's grace. Why? What's the root of this grace? Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of Christ is nothing less than the gospel of Christ. That's his testimony. A testimony about someone is the the message of who they are and what they've done. And Jesus Christ is the gospel. Paul had first preached this gospel to them. In Acts 18, he had that ministry there in Corinth. And they received the gospel. And this gospel became the entry point that God would use to fill their lives with His grace. What does that mean for us? That means that until we receive the gospel, God has no way of giving His grace to us. The gospel is the the channel by which He fills us with His grace. The grace of God will never flourish in your life until the seed of Christ's gospel is firmly rooted in your heart. I'll say that again. The grace of God will never flourish in your life until the seed of Christ's gospel is firmly planted in your heart. And when that seed is planted in your heart and you water it by the reading of the word, by prayer, by attending a local church, God gives the increase. And all the spiritual blessings and all divine love and all of heavenly grace flow in that joyous wine which is produced from the fruits of Christ the true vine. John 15, the glorious truth that Jesus Christ and His gospel is the root of grace. It's it's where grace grows and springs out of. Fourth thing about grace that you need to understand. You need to understand the reservoir of grace. The reservoir of grace in verse 7. Paul says, this testimony was confirmed in you so that in order to cause so that ye come behind in no gift. Now there's two senses in which this phrase can be taken. Do these gifts, in verse 7, does this refer only to the miraculous spiritual gifts that Paul's going to discuss later in this epistle? He's going to talk a lot about spiritual gifts and healings and knowledge and tongues and prophecy. Or... Is this an all-inclusive reference to the totality of God's gracious gifts? I believe the context of chapter 1 is most fitting with the latter. When when Paul says, so that ye come behind in no gift, he's talking about every kind of gift that God gives His people. You're not coming behind in any of them. You're not wanting for anything. Corinth, you've been given everything. What does that mean? That means that the problems that they're having in Corinth, it's not because God didn't give them the grace they needed. It's because they didn't appropriate His grace in the proper way. 
It's the same for you. When you fall into sin, it's not because God didn't give you enough grace in that moment. He gave you the grace. You didn't use it. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, you've come behind in no gift. You have all of the grace of God that you need. Those who partake of the gracious fruits of the true vine, Jesus Christ, are lacking in no gift whatsoever. All their needs are supplied by their all-sufficient Lord and Savior. And when we bring petitions to, to our Lord, when we pray our supplications before God, we are asking Him to meet our needs on the basis of this bottomless reservoir of grace. It never dries up. God's grace is infinite and endless. God is never in short supply. And He always has more grace and more grace and more grace to give to His children. It was grace that carried you through the day today. It's going to be grace that gives you rest tonight. And tomorrow when you wake up, God's grace will be waiting on you in the morning. The magnitude of our blessings in Christ that we're able to swim in this reservoir of grace. Fifth, I want you to see the revelation of grace. The revelation of grace. In verse 7, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the structure of this phrase, as we find it in the original, conveys this idea of an intense longing for the appearing of Christ and the revelation of His glory. When I was studying through this passage, I I thought that the translation here of the word coming of our Lord was interesting because the the word there for coming that's translated is the word apocalypsis, which literally means revelation. That's the title of the book of Revelation. If you're reading a Greek New Testament, you get to the last book, it's called the apocalypsis, the, the revelation. So really, the the idea of this verse is the the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again. And this too, the second coming, is attributed to the grace of God. It is the grace of God that puts within us the desire for the return of our Savior. It's God's grace working in our hearts that makes us cry, Even so, come Lord Jesus! Can we desire the return of Christ? It's the grace of God that keeps us from being caught up in the allurements of this world and to have our affections set upon the things above. And it takes the grace of God to tune our hearts so that we yearn for the appearing of Christ over and above all of the present realities in the known world. The Christian is one who desires the presence of God and Jesus Christ more than anything that they can see with the physical eye. This should dramatically change the way that we live our lives in the here and now. We're not called to be idle or passive in light of the Lord's sure return. But we are to be set ablaze, working and laboring, so that we may be found acceptable on that day. Now there's two ditches that we must not fall into when we talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The first is thinking that, well, because Christ may yet tarry for many, many years, that we have the liberty to waste our time and to serve lackadaisically. Well, it's been 2,000 years since he came the first time. He still ain't come back. Might be another 2,000. Could be. I think there's good reason to think that there are things yet to be fulfilled. But that does not give us an excuse to think that we have time to waste. He said, occupy till I come. Work till I come. But the other ditch to fall into, perhaps the most dangerous and definitely the most pervasive in our day, is thinking that perhaps the return of Christ is so imminent that long-term work for God is pointless. You know, when we set about to plant this church here in Paris, I I had a preacher tell me, he said, look at the perilous times that are coming. He said, our Lord's going to come back at any moment. He said, really, what's the point in planning a new work? If I believed that, I'd never dawn the door of a church again. I'd never preach another sermon. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whether He comes tomorrow, whether He comes in 10,000 years, there's always going to be a faithful remnant that serve Him fervently and zealously. Why? Because His grace causes us to want to do that. His grace puts within us a desire to to passionately await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace at work in our hearts will be realized in time and in eternity when the Lord does come again. What a culmination of grace will take place when the brightness of His glory shall remove the curse of sin and those things that are within us that hinder us from experiencing the richness of His grace, they're going to be banished out of our flesh and we shall be graciously changed into the self-same image as the glorified Christ and our Lord's second coming shall initiate an endless eternity in the presence of God dwelling in the fullness of His grace. That's what this text says promises for us. And they're all the results of the eternal grace that was purposed on our behalf. It's a revelation of grace. Look at the retention of grace in verse 8. The grace of God retains us. Who shall also confirm you Unto the end. See, though we long for the gracious revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of this age, we need not wait for His return to experience the reality of His grace. Because God's grace is at work within us right now, keeping us and sustaining us and causing us to persevere. God does not hold on to us because we hold on to Him. No. Our continual faith Our our love and our obedience to God is a direct effect of the persevering grace of God at work within you. If you love the Savior today and if you love the Savior tomorrow, it will be because He is continuing to give you grace. The perseverance of the saints is truly the perseverance of the Son in His saints. And He who falls falls by his own will. But he who stands, stands by the will of God. 
God's grace is so jealous over us that it will not let one on whom it has come slip away and eternally perish. Grace will not let you fall away. Grace will hold on to you. Grace will cleave to you. When you would forsake God, grace will not forsake you. Receive that grace. Oh, you need it so desperately. It was God's grace in eternity that chose you and separated you. It was God's grace that sent Christ into the world to die for your sin. It was the gracious call of the Holy Spirit that imparted life into your never dying soul. And it is God's grace that holds you fast in the Christian life and shall see to it that you never perish. It's God's grace that enables you to sing. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace shall lead me home. It's amazing grace. It'll confirm us to the end that we may, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 see, not only will we be confirmed till the end, but in the end we'll be found blameless. On the last day of judgment, There will not be one accusation charged against us. On the last day of judgment, there will not be be one charge to lay against God's elect. But the grace of God shall confirm us to the end. There will be no stain of sin or remembrance of iniquity on that day. I could have never cleansed myself I'm wholly incapable of atoning for my own sin. It is only by the grace of God that you or I are ever made clean. Even on your best days, your good works and sincerest efforts are entirely inadequate before the holiness of God. And therefore you must rely solely upon the grace of God For only the grace of God can never fail. That's the retention of grace keeping us, holding us, clinging on to us. We're doing pretty good. The seventh characteristic of grace, the the final facet of grace that we need to see from this text is the resolution of grace. The resolution of grace. See, after ending this discourse... This marvelous sentence on the grace of God. It is as if Paul surmises the totality of God's gracious purpose. And he aptly sums it up with these three words in verse 9. Look at it. Paul says, resolved. God is faithful. Paul looked at all of the blessings that come to us by divine grace. Paul looked at all of the gifts that come from the throne of grace. Paul looked at all of the effects of God's grace upon our life. And Paul is thinking, how do I sum this up? How do I, how do I put into a few words what this wonderful thing, this wonderful doctrine called the doctrine of God's grace, what does it mean? And Paul says in verse 9, God is faithful. Has a more glorious proclamation ever been given? Have we ever heard a more beautiful message than that God is faithful? 
And may we bask in the truth of the faithfulness of God and relish in the confidence that it imparts to us. Christian, do you, do you realize what this means for you? That God is faithful. It means that you can know with all assurance that your salvation is perfectly secure, not on the basis of anything you have ever done or will do, but because of the ineffable faithfulness of God. You're secure in Him because God is faithful. You will never be able to out His grace because there is far more forgiveness in Christ then there is reproach in you. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the real blessing is this. Not only will you not be able to out the grace of God, but you will have no desire to do so because you have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. There is a commonality that exists between you and the Son of God so that you now love what He loves. You've partaken of His death. You've experienced His resurrection so that you can now partake of His holy character. May we ever thank God for His grace in calling us to an everlasting fellowship between us and Him. I pray that these seven things about grace have, have put a joy in your heart this evening. I can scarcely take all of these things in at once when I really ponder the depths of the grace of God. And that there's one concluding remark that I must make about the grace of God. And that is this. The grace of God at this very moment in all of its fullness, is available to all those who would come to an end of themselves and place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God, all of the characteristics of grace, all of the attributes of grace, everything we've talked about over the last 45 minutes, All of those things are available to you. If you've never experienced them before, they are available unto you. If you would but come unto Jesus Christ. See, a life lived by grace leaves no room for dependence upon any of your own efforts. So if you're going to come to Jesus Christ, you're going to have to forsake everything else. You're going to have to quit your own works. You're going to have to give up your own doings. You're going to have to turn from your own efforts to make yourself good. You're going to have to receive the free grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel confirmed in you shall unleash a tidal wave of grace that will flood your soul with the deep and mighty love of God. And Jesus Christ stands ready in heaven to receive all those who come unto Him through faith. So my call to you is to come and be a partaker of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've bestowed richly upon your people. Lord, you've been so good to those whom you've loved. You've sent a Savior into the world to die for sin. 
You've sent the Holy Spirit into the world to convict hearts, to regenerate our lives. And now, Father, we ask and beg that you would be pleased to call one more to be a partaker of your grace. Perhaps there's someone here in our midst this evening. Perhaps they've they've heard the Bible preached many, many times. They've heard men talk about the grace of God. They've seen it in the lives of others, but they've never personally partaken of your grace. Father, I pray that you call them unto yourself tonight by the power of the Spirit of God that you'd quicken their heart and you'd manifest your grace personally in their heart. I pray that you'd do that for your own honor and glory's sake. Pray that your grace would bless this church in Paris that we might be a testimony to your grace in the community. Father, we love you. You've been so gracious to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.